in a while, those of you who are not so young, you can turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going through a little mini-series in, in Isaiah as we celebrate this, this time of Advent. Because Isaiah's people very much relate to you people, to us people. Because they too were in a world full of darkness. They too looked forward to the light, to that great reversal that the kingdom of God would bring. And so, follow along as we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, Join me as we pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for how sweet it is. And I pray that we would see that this morning, even as our youngest of children uh, learn about you, learn about what the gospel is. And we pray that you would bless their time as well as ours. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, If you didn't already know, um, the time that we celebrate Christmas, December 25th, We don't believe that that's actually when Jesus was born. Uh, I'm sorry if that's bursting any bubbles. Uh, Based on other evidences of the time of year, what the shepherds were doing, all of these things, we actually believe that Jesus was born in early spring, March, April, that that time. It's much more likely. So so why do we continue to celebrate on December 25th? Well, there there are a few reasons. I want to highlight one that has to do with the calendar itself. Uh, do you know what happens every year near the end of June? June 20th, June 21st, June 22nd. Do you know what happens? It's called the summer solstice. And we mark that day because after June 21st, around there, uh, the sunlight grows less and less. There's less and less sunlight, so we could say there's less and less light. The days go darker and darker and darker and darker until guess what day? Right around the end of December, 
usually around December 21st when we have the winter solstice. And what happens in the winter solstice? Light breaks in. Light breaks in. And every day after the winter solstice, there's a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more sunlight. And so in the calendar, we have this metaphor for Jesus Christ. In a world full of darkness that is growing darker and darker, and it appears that it is growing worse and worse and worse and worse, light breaks in. Jesus Christ, the great reversal himself, comes into the world and shines a light in the darkest places. And so Israel was called to wait for God to change their darkness into light. And here we are again, awaiting people, waiting for God's light to once again break through the darkness and reverse all the bad things, all the darkness of this world. Now, if you are completely satisfied with every aspect of your job, your marriage, how school is going, your relationship with friends, this world, this sermon is not for you. However, if you are comforted by the fact that when the world and our hearts are at the darkest, that that's when light shines in, then let's look at Isaiah 9 this morning. And what we're going to see is that this child brings light to our darkness, the child brings peace to our conflict, and the child brings closure to our story. First, we're going to look at the many ways that the child brings light to our darkness. If you remember last week, do you remember what we read at the end of Isaiah chapter 8? Isaiah makes a contrast between Israel and true Israel, and we see this in verse 16 of chapter 8. He says, For true Israel, you have a command, you have a job. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Hold fast to his word. That's your job, true Israel. But there's another Israel. There's the Israel within Israel. Right? And in verse 21, when troubles come, what happens to them? They will be enraged. They will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and they will turn their faces upward. Think of, you know, true Israel and Israel. That's the reality for Israel back then. The true Israel gets a different promise in verse 1 of our passage this morning. There will be gloom and deep darkness for Israel, but for true Israel, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. God gave them something to hold on to in the midst of great trouble. The future. In the future, there will be no gloom for you, true Israel. But look how Isaiah refers to future events, things that have not yet happened. He writes, In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. Verse 2, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt on them, light has shined. You have multiplied the nations already. You have increased its joy, so on and so forth he goes. Isaiah speaks of future events as if they've already happened. Why? Because God's promises are certain. Believe that, Christian. The light, that was the light for true Israel in the midst of great darkness. 
They had invading armies. They had terrible kings. And just like you, they had sin rampant all around them. And yet, they had these sure promises. And now, that must have been comforting for them at that time. Yes, things are bad now, but they would come to an end. But you have something even better. You have something even more comforting. The words of Jesus Christ, uh, Matthew chapter 4. Remember all those places we just read? Zebulon, Naphtali, the way by the sea. Here's Matthew chapter 4, hundreds of years later. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Same place. In the territory of Nebulun and Naphtali. Now, why did that happen? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Israel was looking forward to a promise. And they were trusting that it would happen. You have a different perspective altogether. You look back and you say, that has happened. God did keep His promises. And if God kept those promises, there's no reason to believe He won't keep His other promises. And with the fulfillment of Isaiah's words, Matthew tells us something else in verse 17. He writes that from that time, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Israelites look forward to being delivered from darkness and anguish, and so do we. And yet, look what we read in Colossians chapter 1. We currently have this promise that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness already. He has already transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we now already have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why did Paul write that? Because Paul knew what we sometimes take for granted. That yes, Israel needed to be delivered from armies. Yes, Israel needs to be delivered from sickness and turmoil and anguish, sure. But they have a deeper need that surpasses all those needs. They need to be delivered from the darkness in their own hearts, the darkness we call sin. The darkness that leads that needs light is in our own hearts and is brought by this child, the king. Now how can a little child do this? Because of what we read in, in John chapter 8, this little child would grow up to be King Jesus who spoke to his disciples saying, I am the light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I am that light, says Jesus, in plain words for you to see. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but they will have the light of life. Now, here's the problem Here's the potential problem with Jesus saying that. Whoever follows me, whoever follows the light, will have the light of life. Okay, well, Isaiah said the same thing in Isaiah chapter 2. He said, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Raise your hands if you think uh, the Israelites followed the light of the Lord. Thank you for no one raising their hand, right? They, they had the same command. Walk in the light of the Lord, but they didn't do it. Why is Jesus any different? Well, uh, John sheds 
I wasn't even trying to be funny here. I, John sheds some light uh, in John chapter 3, verse 19. He says, The light has come into the world. Why didn't they follow it? Because they love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. It, it reminds me of, of when I was younger, still in school, middle school, high school. Um, I mean, you, you know how it is. You're, you're in bed eight, nine, ten hours, maybe longer if you're still growing. And you're just used to the light. you got to get up early for school. That time comes. And then one of your parents, usually your dad, comes in full volume and turns all the lights on, right? And then you make that face. You know the one. Right? Why? Because you were in darkness. You got used to the darkness. The darkness feels good. You like it. And so when good light comes in, what do you do to the light? The light that is supposed to be illuminating can sometimes be blinding. The salvation of Jesus Christ can sometimes be a stumbling block. John explains in the very next verse. We read John 3.19, here's 3.20. Why do the people love darkness? Because everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And they don't come to the light because their works are going to be exposed. When do you most hide when you have something to hide? But whoever does what is true comes to the light. They are attracted to it so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so, Christian, we have to ask ourselves continually, are we living in darkness and enjoying it? Are we part of the light yet still living in darkness? Have we been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, the kingdom of light, and yet still are dominated by the domain of darkness? Hear now the good news of the gospel, Christian. Because the good news of the gospel is not, Jesus is the light of the world, so get your act together. The gospel is not, Jesus is the light of the world, so try to inject more light into your life. The gospel comes just a few verses after Jesus announces that he is the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. That's the great reversal of the gospel. Don't settle for anything less. The gospel is not Jesus is the light of the world. Isn't that great? The gospel is Jesus is the light of the world, and so in him, you are the light of the world. You are what God is choosing to use to cast out the darkness of this world. You are what God is using to shed light into the lives of your family, your extended family, your co-workers, your teammates, your schoolmates. You are what God uses. That is the great reversal. Those who love the darkness are now being used as light. The hope of the Israelites rested on a future child. That child has come and he has brought light to our darkness. And so just like the child brings light to our darkness, that light has an effect and it brings peace to our conflict. So, number two, Jesus 
The child brings light, brings peace to our darkness. Look at verses 4 and 5 in our passages this morning. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God doesn't simply ask for us to change the internal circumstances of our hearts. That's light and darkness. He promises that he will change our external circumstances as well. One day. One day. And he asks you to believe in what he will do based on what he's already done. Um, Isaiah looks forward in time. And here's what happens. He sees that God has already broken the enemies of Israel. It's sure. You can depend on it. Just as he did on the day of Midian. So, let's go there. What happened on the day of Midian? Here's why that's comforting. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. We read that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Midian didn't thwart God's plans for his people. They were his plan for his people. Let me translate. Coronavirus didn't thwart God's plan for his people. It was his plan for his people. These tornadoes happening in Kentucky did not catch God by surprise and mess up his plans. They are his plans. Insert whatever situation is going on in your life, whatever conflict is happening. Your struggles in your marriage did not thwart God's plan. They were His plan. Your struggles with your children, co-workers, job, they did not thwart God's plan. They were God's plan. And do you remember, do you remember the comfort that God gives Midian, uh, sorry, Gideon, they sound the same. Exodus, uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 12. The angel appeared to Gideon, and he said to him, something that I hope sounds familiar in the context of Isaiah, the Lord is Emanu. The Lord is Emanu. Emmanuel is God. El is, is God in Hebrew. Emmanuel is God is with you. But when you say the Lord is with you, you are saying Yahweh, Adonai. Yahweh, Imanu. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, Almighty Man of Valor. That's all that Gideon needed to hear. And yet, he asks the same question you and I ask If the Lord is Imanu, why? If my good God is with me, not yet, not quite yet. If my good God is with me, then why are all these things happening? Well, interestingly enough, the Lord didn't answer in the way he wanted. He simply replies in verse 14, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. God simply reiterated simply reminded Gideon that he would be with him because that's what Gideon needed. That's what we need. You know, children are, are sometimes the best theologians among us. Um, it's a little embarrassing because I, 
I paid quite a bit of money to go to seminary, and yet my, my two-year-old is often teaching me theology. Um, I was outside with my kiddos earlier this week, and we were blowing bubbles, as you do. Uh, well, eventually my, my daughter grew tired of, of watching me blow bubbles, and she wanted to, and I quote, do myself. So she, you know, trying to be a good dad, I, I handed it to her, watching her very carefully so she doesn't spill. But of course, it went all over her, all over her clothes. She's now wet and not happy about it. But it, it was interesting, her reaction. Her reaction wasn't, take it off. You know, her reaction wasn't, stop it dry. Her reaction wasn't any of that. Her reaction was simply to put her arms up and say, hold you? Did I hold you? That's all she wanted. And then as the, as the afternoon continued, we went to go change her clothes and uh, I asked her to go put her dirty clothes in her room. Her room is at the end of a dark hallway and none of the lights were on. So she gets about halfway there, and she comes, you know, teetering back. She said, it's dark. And so, I, I, you know, I asked, okay, well, do you want me to go turn a light on? No. Do you want me to go do it? No. She simply put her under one hand up and said, come with you? Dada, come with you? And so this two-year-old is teaching me about theology. This two-year-old didn't want her circumstances changed. She didn't want me to turn on a light or do it for her. This two-year-old simply wanted her dad to be with her. She simply wanted her dad to be with her. You know, and so pain is a familiar acquaintance to us all. We have either experienced great pain in the past we're going to in the future or we are experiencing it right now. Christian, we do not need our circumstances to change. We do not need all of our questions to be answered right now. We need a God who is with his people and in doing so brings peace in the midst of our conflict. Amen? Your hope, Christian, is not once this is over, once my children are older. Once I get a different job, once I'm retired, once I have this amount of money in my bank account, once our hope is right now in the midst of that. Remember, Gideon was asked to lead an army of 300 against an army of thousands. Compare that to your problems. <laughs> And yet, in the midst of that, God reminded Gideon that he would be with him. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord. And do you know what he called the altar? In Hebrew, he called it Yahweh Shalom. You can probably guess what that means in English. Verse 24, the Lord is peace. God doesn't promise us a change of circumstances. He offers us peace in the midst of them. That's why Paul who was beaten, mocked, and imprisoned. Again, compare that to your circumstances. Paul, who was beaten, mocked, and imprisoned, 
wrote in Philippians chapter 4, as our Tuesday Ladies Bible Study will attest. He writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, those are pretty big words, by the way, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, be with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and it is the peace of God, which, yes, surpasses all understanding. That is what is going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because this child of Isaiah 9 would grow up to read as we read in verse 6, the Prince of Peace. So we see that the child brings light to our darkness. He brings peace to our conflict. But the really good news is that this child doesn't only bring light to our darkness that one day might become dark again. This child doesn't bring temporary peace to our conflicts. There is a finality to what this child does, and that is why the child brings closure to our story. You see the promise in verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 9. He writes, You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, why are God's people so happy in the future? Lots of reasons. If you're looking at Isaiah, and this is why a physical Bible is so nice, if you're looking at Isaiah, in verse 3 he says, these things happen, and then back to back to back you have this word for. In verse 4, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. God has defeated all the enemies of his people. Even that great enemy we call sin, even death, by injecting light into the darkness. Verse 5, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Not only did God defeat his enemies, he's made it so that they can never fight again. All of the things that they would need for war are gone. But most importantly, most importantly, we see in verse 6, how is all this to happen? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called, and now let's take these one by one. Wonderful Counselor. We see first, Wonderful Counselor. The one who has wisdom beyond all comprehension. We see that he is number two, Mighty God. He is able to defeat any enemy. He is able to defeat even sin and death, and so mighty that nothing can snatch you out of his hand. We see number three, I'm taking this out of order on purpose, Prince of Peace. We've already seen how this child would rule and bring peace through his justice and righteousness. And finally, he is the everlasting father. Just like a father, right? How can a child be a father? Just like a father protects his family, protects what is his own, so this child would protect his people. But how is that different from other kings? Well, he would do it everlastingly, forever. You don't have to worry about this king not being king anymore. Your story, the story of the whole universe, has 
an ending, a closure to it, and that is Jesus sitting on the throne. And so if you would, for a moment, allow me to do a, a quick lightning round of, of a few scripture passages to, to show you how important it is that Jesus is sitting on his throne. Romans chapter 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He is seated at the right hand of God. Colossians chapter 3. If you have been raised, seek the things that are above. How are you enabled to do that, Christian? How can you seek the things that are above? Well, we who once hated the darkness, if we have been raised with Christ, Colossians chapter 3, you are seated at the right hand of God. That is where Christ is. If you are in Christ, then you are where Christ is. If you are in Christ, you died with Christ. If you are in Christ, you were raised with Christ. If you are in Christ, you are seated in the heavenly places as we read elsewhere. And finally, as we just saw a few weeks ago, Matthew chapter 26. When asked if Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, when asked if he was the child promised in Isaiah hundreds of years prior, Jesus answered, I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. I have a limited amount of time in my sermons, as, as you can tell by your attention span. Like, I have a limited amount of time. I have to choose what I include in my sermons very carefully. So I debated about including this. Here's why I finally decided to include it. In the Old Testament, the, the Israelites had a way of dealing with their darkness, with their conflict, right? They had animal sacrifices. You had sin, and you would kill an animal in order for that life to take the place of your own, because as we've seen elsewhere in Scripture, sin deserves death. Sin deserves death. That's it. That's the final consequence of sin. And so either you die or something or someone dies in your place. That is why they had animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. These sacrifices would happen in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. Now, inside the tabernacle, which is a, a great big tent, you had a smaller tent. And this tent was divided into two smaller areas. You had the holy place and then the holy of holies. This is a place where only the priest could walk in. The priests who were in charge of killing the animals for the sacrifice for your sins. You seem like you're with me so far. Okay, here's, here's the punchline. What would you see inside that tent? You would see an altar of incense. You would see a lampstand. You would see a table. You would even see the ark. You know what you wouldn't see? A chair. Why wouldn't you see a chair? Because there was always work to be done. There was always more sacrifices to make because those sacrifices, those animal sacrifices, only washed away the sins temporarily. They only washed away the current sins. And so... You sin, an animal is sacrificed for your sins, but then you sin again. And guess what you have to do again? 
You have to sacrifice an animal again. And then you sin again, and then guess what you have to do again? Over and over. Over and over and over and over and over again. If only, if only there were an animal so pure, so holy, that once it was sacrificed, it was enough to wash away every sin of mine. And not just mine, but what if it could take away the sins of everyone? What does Jesus sitting down mean? It means what he said on the cross. It is finished. He is still working. He's still interceding on our behalf, but the work of sacrifice, the work of atoning for our sins is done. It is finished. And so he sits down as king to rule over all creation. That is why we read in Isaiah chapter 9 that he rules forever. He sits down. It's done. How does this bring closure to your story? Because we know the ending of every story before it even begins. We know that Jesus is sitting on his throne in charge and in control, reigning wondrously, as we sang multiple times this morning. We know that in all circumstances, God is good and that he is in charge. And that should change how we go through life, though it doesn't always. One more story. I tell, I, I tell this one often because it's so applicable, and I'll probably tell, tell it again. Um, a few years ago, there was a particularly consequential uh, football game I wanted to watch. At least I thought it was consequential at the time. Um, but I, I couldn't watch it live because I had to work. And so I did what you do at that time, which was record the game. Well, unfortunately, at my job at the time, there were TVs playing ESPN constantly. So I saw the final score before I could actually watch the game. Bummer, right? Well, turns out my team won. And whenever my team wins, I want to watch the replay to sort of enjoy and revel in victory. Well, since it was my team that won, what should have happened, what should have happened, is that no matter what, no matter how many turnovers, no matter how many bad plays, even if there were injuries, I should have been calm. I should have been confident. Because I knew the final score. I knew my team won. Instead, what happened was this. What are you going to do? That's a terrible play call. You're going to run it on third and 18. Who is making these decisions? Ref, that was a terrible call. That was obvious pass interference. So on and so on and so on. This is what we do, Christians. We know the end of the story. We know that in the end, even right now, Jesus is seated on his throne. We know that we will be seated with him in the heavenly places. We know what awaits us. And yet, that guy's president, the stock market did what? And we panic. And we fret. And we worry as if all our hope is in things of this world and we forget 
we forget. And so, as Peter would say, allow me to stir you up by way of reminder. This child was born. This child that was promised in the future for Israel is now in our past. He was born. He is now sitting on his throne reigning wondrously. And so, Christian, allow the light of the gospel to shine in your life and the lives of others. Allow the peace of God to take over your heart even in the most difficult circumstances. And allow the fact that Jesus is reigning now and forevermore to shape how you react to even the most devastating news. Let's pray and thank God for this wonderful news. And as I pray, I'm hoping the usher in the back is listening so that he might bring the Lord's supper table to the front. And if not, I'm trusting one of you to quiet exitly and do that. Thank you. Dear God, thank you that you have brought light to our darkness, that you have brought peace to even the most contentious conflict. And thank you that you have brought closure to our story. We cannot see where we are in in our story. We cannot fully see where we are in the history of the universe. But we know that you are in control. We know that you are reigning and we know that all things work together for good for those who love you. And so I pray in light of that, that you would allow us to have confidence, that you would allow us to have joy in even the most troubling of circumstances. And we pray this in the name of that child who was born, Jesus Christ. Amen. And so we come to this table that is not yet set, but it is, it is prepared, it is ready, it will be here. We come with, with mixed emotions, so to speak. I look around at whenever we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, and, and I see a mix of emotions. I see, on the one hand, guilt over our sin. Right? It was my sin that put him there on the cross. It was my sin that made this sacrifice necessary. And yet, there is great joy, Christian. Because for the joy set before him, that's what, excuse me, that's why Jesus came. That's why this child was born, to reign and sit on the throne of David. This child that was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God, despised and rejected by men, very acquainted with grief, did did all of those things for you, for your good for his people. And so, there is a great reversal that we've just been talking about. The people destined for an eternity in hell are now saved by this child and are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Thank you, brothers. So as much as we might feel guilty for this table, it is also a place for rejoicing. Because the sacrifice for our sins is done. The work is finished. And so if you are here this morning, struggling with doubts, with difficult circumstances, with a feeble faith, this table is for you. If you have trusted your life uh, to Him and depend on Him for your joy, and you can confidently call yourself one of God's children, this table is for you. But if you are not yet at a place where you can call Jesus your Lord, if you, if you cannot yet call yourself among true Israel, we ask that you not partake. And instead, take this time to wrestle with some difficult questions. What happens after death? 
Who is my Lord? Because something and someone is. Likewise, if you count yourself among God's people, but you are not living like it. If you count yourself among the light, and yet you are living in darkness, we ask that you do everything in your power to be reconciled. Do everything in your power to live in the light and be in the light. For all of us, let us consider the beauty and weight of this table as we pray and the elders come forward. Dear God, thank you for this table that you have set, that you have instituted. Thank you that it is you who set this table. It is you who is in charge. It is you who have brought light to our darkness. And so I pray that this table would be an encouragement for us, an encouragement for all who partake, and also an encouragement for those who are witnessing what is happening with this table. That sin is serious. That sin required a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. But also that the sacrifice is done. And Jesus loved his people so much that he died and suffered for them. And so it is in your name that we partake of this table, Lord. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.